Arrival, October 20th, 1943. Dears kids, well, here I am in Great Britain, and you can well imagine how thrilled and excited I am. We are going through our final clearance here today, and then late this afternoon or tomorrow, we'll get our assignments. Hope mine will be a good one. Spent some time in London yesterday. One really knows there is a war on in London. Just looking around and seeing all the damage that has been done makes you realize, to a small extent, what these people have been through. If you thought the New York blackout was something, you should see Great Britain. The whole place seems like an unoccupied, deserted village at night. We had Jan Kipper services on the ship, and they were very nice. There was no Jewish chaplain present, so one of the boys conducted them. I was terribly touched and had a good cry all through them, but felt much better when it was over. Kiss the girls for me. All my love to you, Phil. Sunday night, the 28th of February, 1944. Still in England. Dearest gang, Yesterday morning, we all got up bright and early because the four of us were going to fly to London for the day. Got to the airport around 10.30, but it was terribly foggy, and we had to wait. We were invited to luncheon at the RAF officer's mess, and let me tell you, I never tasted such wonderful food in England. I thought ours was good, but the RAF really gets the cream, and such service, and a wonderful bar with really good scotch. Finally took off sometime after two. And let me tell you, it was thrilling. We only had a small plane, a Fairchild, but the pilot really knew his stuff. Started for London, but after we were about halfway, had to land because of fog. So we landed at the RAF field in Andover. By the way, you guys should buy a good map of England so you'll be able to find all the places I go. Planes are the way to travel, kid and England really looks wonderful from up there. The countryside looks like a multicolored patchwork quilt. So you see, I'm really fighting the war in luxury and having a world of fun. Take good care of yourselves. Don't worry about me, and write often. All my love to you, Phil. In those early days in England, Phyllis was game for anything. April 16th, 1944, from her assigned station, 36 Station Hospital, England. Dearest Janie, Monday night after supper, played golf again, and expect to play tonight if the weather stays as nice as it is. The weather here is simply glorious, and whoever it was who said, oh, to be in England now that April is here, really had something on the ball. I'm really the girl athlete. Every day at noon, I take a bike riding lesson, and now can get on and started it all by myself. I also can pedal pretty well, but I do have trouble stopping the thing. I just can't seem to get my body to do what my mind tells it to do, but I guess that will come with a little more practice. I only have one scratched ankle, which I think is pretty good, don't you? Also, I pitch at least one game of horseshoes every day, 
and I'm really getting damn good at it. Right now, I'm getting ready to go out and play volleyball with the nurses. They have organized athletics at least twice a week, and Mike and I try to get out and teach those klutzes to run around a little bit and loosen up. It's a tough job, but we think and hope we are getting somewhere with it. Gotta go now. One of the nurses just arrived and said they are ready for me to start playing. Take good care of yourselves and the children. Does Judy walk yet? All my love, Phil. Celebrities. October 5th, 1944, 36th Station Hospital, England. We had all kinds of excitement here Sunday around noon. Joe Lewis and his sparring partners were here for lunch. They ate in the enlisted men's mess and then came into the rec hall where all the patients were lined up waiting to see him. He and the men with him got up on the stage and stood up there for about 15 minutes cracking a few bum jokes. But they all thought he was wonderful. He also went on a few of the closed wards and signed some autographs. November 24th, 1944. Phyllis now assigned to Belgium to the 130th General Hospital. More shows for the troops. Just finished helping Marlene Diedrich get dressed, and am quite pooped and envious. She put on a show here today and is truly a very gracious person. She has a lovely figure, and when she is made up, is very glamorous. Upon her arrival here in her combat clothes, she looked like any of us. But oh, when she changed into her dress. The show was very good, or so the boys say. I was too busy to go. Phyllis closes this letter saying, Been running all over Belgium and even to the supply depots on the German border, trying to get cigarettes and supplies for our patients. At the moment, we have nothing but our bare hands and our own ingenuity to work with. Please try and get me some scotch tape and one of those metal businesses to put it on. More in a few days, Phil. The business of war got busy the winter of 1945. Evacuation. January 3rd, 1945, the 130th General Hospital. Dearest all, now it can be told. The war got pretty close to us in Belgium, and all of a sudden, we were practically the front, and the casualties just poured in because all the evacuation hospitals had to run. We all worked like dogs, but loved it. For two nights, I served coffee all night long to patients and ambulance drivers. We also helped feed patients, etc., because we had to turn our Red Cross room into a ward. Well, anyway, on Thursday, December 21st, sometime during the night, our CACO decided it was time for some of us to be evacuated. So we packed all we could in a musette bag, and out we dashed on trucks to Reims. All of us wore as many things as we possibly could and really looked ridiculous. But refugees always do look kind of funny, and that is just what we were. I wish you could have seen us packing that night. Everyone is groggy as hell, 
wondering whether to save underwear or perfume or liquor. Most of us decided in favor of perfume. All of the stories I have written you about Christmas, etc., were lies. But I didn't want to tell you anything till we were back, safe and sound. It broke our hearts not to be there for Christmas after all the work we had done preparing for it, but orders are orders. More in a few days. Love to you all, Phil. January 20th, 1945, from the 130th General Hospital. Janie, darling, haven't had much time to write to you lately, but know you understand. Things here really had us hopping, but now we're pretty much settled down to our normal routine again. I don't know why I say normal, but can't think of any other word at the moment. Felt very badly to hear the news about Jerry D. I guess a lot of our friends won't be back. I think that when I do get home and find so many old familiar faces gone, that then I'll really feel the loss. Right now, we all feel so impersonal about injury, death, etc., but that's the only way to face it from this point. If one gets sentimental about it, then she's completely lost. Sounds kind of hard-boiled coming for me, doesn't it? I'm not really much changed underneath this, so there's nothing for you to worry about. All my love to the girls, Phil. February 16th, 1945, from the 130th General Hospital, for the troops. Norm, get me about a dozen pair of good bone dice. All we can get here are wooden ones. Tell Al Simon to get you some 26 dice. We use them a lot in our rec hall and in some of our ward programs. No real gambling, just for prizes furnished by the Red Cross. Guess the people of Belgium don't go in for crap shooting. It is strictly an old American custom, from what I can learn. There was other work to be done. Finished all my monthly reports this morning and really feel much relieved. The book's balanced except for a few odd cents, and we can't worry about a little thing like that. This international finance can really get very involved at times. Among my many and varied talents, I now am a bricklayer. Two of the huts on the hill are going to be our officers' lounge and club, and we have decided that we should decorate them ourselves. So the dental officer and I are building the fireplaces in them. Last night, we loaded bricks on a wheelbarrow and brought them up to the hut, and tonight, we start the actual laying of the bricks. You should see me with a pair of dirty pair of fatigues, a scarf on my head, and great big workman's gloves on my hands. It is not a pretty picture, but it's fun. Some of the others are building a bar, and the rest are making drapes and painting the place. The two huts are connected, and we are fixing up the smaller one as sort of a living room, reading room, in which the girls can entertain their dates, etc. 
and the big room is a sort of rumpus room for cards, drinking, ping pong, and dancing. We are trying hard to get the place ready for a week from Saturday night so that we can have a housewarming party. It will mean working practically every night, till then, on the place, but the end result should be good. February 16th, 1945. War news. Guys, the war news does sound much better, but people here are still not too optimistic. They know the nature of the beast better than the folks at home do. We know we'll win eventually, but when is really the $64,000 question. As much as Phyllis is worried about the family worrying about her, she also worried about staying in contact. February 16th, 1945. Dearest Janie, Got the pictures of the children today and was simply thrilled with them. They certainly have grown up. I can hardly believe that Judy is so big. I'll never know her. Only hope you keep mentioning my name to her so that she'll know who I am. Dearest kids, just love Joni's letter and have practically worn the damn thing out showing it to everyone. Judy sounds like an adorable little girl, and I do hope that you took some pictures at her birthday party so that I can keep up with her rapid growth. Keep up the good work of writing. You guys really have been swell. Letters from home do mean an awful lot around here at all times. Take good care of yourselves and the children. Give my best to your folks. All my love, Phil. February 21st, 1945, from the 130th. Dearest doll, I'm writing this in bed. It's my late morning because I work tonight. In fact, I work five nights a week until 8.30 or 9. Go on duty at noon those days, so it's not bad. And you know how I love to sleep in the mornings. All my love, Phil. February 22nd, 1945. Janie, dear, this will probably be incoherent because I'm writing while trying to run a movie for the patients. Have been stopped about 20 times the last time to supervise the prisoners while they unloaded Red Cross supplies. Last night, we had a good GI show here and I took part of them on the wards to play for the men who are not ambulatory. I think the performers got even more from it than the listeners. American boys are really good, especially when they are doing something for the sick and wounded. We can all be very proud of all of them. Take good care of yourselves, and don't worry about me. All my love, Phil. March 3rd, 1945, from the 130th. I wish I could write a book about some of the things I have seen young nurses do. It takes an awfully strong-willed woman to retain her sense of balance and proportion over here. Seder, remember me. 
Got the chain letter written at the Seder today and was truly thrilled with it. Glad you could all be together and have such a wonderful time. Mom, you're as cute as ever, but for goodness sake, try taking it easy once in a while. Phyllis's letter home about her Passover celebration is dated March 19, 1945, from the 130th General Hospital. Dearest folks, happy Passover to you. Hope you had as nice a Seder as we did. I'm enclosing the program so that you will see how nice it was. It was held at the gym at headquarters, and there were close to 700 people there. One of the men in Ben's office was chairman, so they sent for me early to help with the flowers, etc. The feminine touch. Then, the payoff. The chaplain asked me to light the candles and say the prayer. Of course, he wrote it out for me. I practiced a few times and got pretty nervous, but did okay in Hebrew and in English. We all sat at the speaker's table with all the big shots, most of them non-Jews, but I coached them and made the matzah sandwiches, etc. for them. Some Jewish women in town made the chopped liver and the cannonballs. The cannonballs were simply delicious, as was all the rest of the food. The tables looked beautiful. We used sheets as tablecloths, medicine glasses for wine glasses, mason jars for vases with lots of yellow jonquils in them, and candles all over the place. It was a truly impressive night. All the cleaning and washing of dishes, moving of furniture, etc., was done by the German prisoners of war. Rather ironical, but they really had those guys working. The serving was done by the Belgian women who work in the messes. We even had Benny at the speaker's table with us. He's not Jewish, but a supply officer at headquarters, so we thought he should sit there, even though he is only a captain. He really was thrilled with it, too, as were all the men. I was the only woman at the speaker's table. The rest of the letter Phyllis wrote contains news about the breakup of their staff. Her friend Kay has been ill. Her supervisor, Mary Ramish, will be leaving soon. We certainly are going to miss her. She's a very fine person, brilliant and wonderful to work with and for. She's so understanding and has been grand to us gals. Hope the new one is half as nice. Phyllis closes. Take good care of yourselves, all of you. Miss you more all the time, particularly at the holiday season. But maybe next year I'll be home for the Seder. One can never tell. All my love to all. Phil. Hello and welcome to the Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we have a special bonus episode in Stanley's transition from soldier to civilian. It's about my favorite aunt, Phyllis M. Gordon, who was a Red Cross volunteer and served in Europe during World War II. 
You have just heard a selection of Phyllis's letters read by the remarkable Kelly Seavers. Kelly and I attended the memorial service for Aunt Phyllis in Chicago in April 1995. We each spoke at the service that day at Temple Sholem on Chicago's North Shore. Kelly read the very same excerpts from those letters in a very emotional presentation that had Aunt Phyllis's family and friends in tears. Now, 28 years later, we began this episode reprising those amazing words, sharing them with you as we review the life of a remarkable woman. Aunt Phyllis was the oldest child of Jack and Bess Gordon, and a sibling to Norman and my mother, Shirley June Gordon. Phyllis was born in Chicago in April 1913 and died in January of 1995. A Chicago Sun-Times January 3, 1995 obituary about Aunt Phil said this, Phyllis M. Gordon, 82, a former Red Cross worker and secretary, died Monday at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. A Northside resident and Northwestern University graduate, Miss Gordon was a secretary for the late Rabbi Louis Binstock of Temple Sholem. During World War II, she served overseas with the Red Cross. She was also a sales representative in the housewares industry, retiring five years ago. Miss Gordon was a volunteer for Traveler's Aid for more than 25 years and also did volunteer work for Michael Reese Service League, the Chicago Public Library, and Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Private services were held Monday. Plans for a memorial service are pending. This episode about my favorite aunt follows one about my connection to the New Yorker magazine. And it was Aunt Phyllis who introduced me to the New Yorker as I started reading it in her Chicago apartment as a kid around 10. Phyllis joined the Red Cross in 1942. She was 29. She shipped to Europe in October of 1943 and wrote letters to her family throughout her service in Europe. Phyllis returned home from her war in late fall 1945 to a grand holiday celebration. Her brother, Norman Gordon, and his wife, Jane, welcomed family and friends to their apartment on West Aldine Avenue. And that's where the Silver King, our hero, Stanley L. Silverfield, met Phyllis's younger sister, Shirley. Stanley and Shirley married on June 19, 1946, in Chicago, at the Intercontinental Hotel on Michigan Avenue. Aunt Phyllis was a remarkable person. Never married, she made every niece, and there were four, and one nephew, me, feel very special. She literally knit our family together over decades. For me, it was the Bears, Badgers, Cubs, and a world of culture in her home city, and the New Yorker magazine. 
Phyllis introduced me to Madison, Wisconsin, as a young, impressionable, up-and-coming citizen. We traveled by plane and train for weekends with the Levines, Badger football games, and lunches on the Edgewater Hotel Terrace. Those trips shaped my life. I wanted to be a Badger. I got into college, and I'm sure it was with her help. The love of her life, Jay Seneco, lived with his mother and sisters in Madison. Jay drove a large Ford Thunderbird, and he promised that I could drive it when I became a Badger. But Jay died in 1966, just before my fall season as a freshman and kitchen minion at Lowell Hall on the Madison campus that was owned by the Levine family. Phyllis, who graduated from Northwestern University, had a full career as an executive assistant and office manager. And she never stopped her volunteer life, serving Traveler's Aid, Michael Reese Hospital League, and the Chicago Public Library and Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Phyllis died in January of 1995, and the family celebrated her life at Temple Sholem in April that year. Kelly and I, with other family members, shared our stories about Aunt Phyllis and her war letters on a lovely April day. And after the service was over, I lost it. I was inconsolable for many minutes. These are some of my words about Aunt Phyllis from that day. Saying goodbye to those you love is difficult and the greatest honor in a life. And no one will walk on this earth who commands my love and respect as Aunt Phyllis did. Phyllis shaped my world just as she did for everyone she touched, loved, and guided through life's mysteries. I have traveled a lifetime to praise Aunt Phyllis, and she imbued me with passion, clarity, purpose, service, and opinions. After I read my eulogy for the Silver King in October 1990 at a service for him in Rockford, Illinois, she came up to me, looked in my face, pinched my cheek, and said, You're okay, kid. Now, through tears, I summon the courage to say thank you and goodbye. What I want you to know about Phyllis Gordon is that she was important and special to family and friends throughout the world. We were all fortunate to share her life and love. Her soul and spirit remain a powerful force in our lives, and I will always be her okay kid. And you are listening to The Silver King's War. <laughs> 